Good morning, it's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Utah Jazz are back at it tonight. 8 o'clock, late game ESPN. The Jazz hosting the Brooklyn Nets, who picked up a win last night, 116-112. In Portland, Damian Lillard did not shoot the ball well. C.J. McCollum did not shoot the ball well. But the number that jumped out at me was 40. James Harden played 40 minutes. Those are big numbers. And it'll be interesting to see... If he plays tonight, how much he plays tonight, how much energy he's got if he goes, that's a lot of minutes to be playing. But they got the win. They open on, we've got, uh, they got a three-game road trip here, and they got that win, and they're playing without Kyrie Irving, who's not on the trip. Kevin Durant's been out. He's played less than half the games for the Nets this season. And, uh, hey, the Nets found a way to get a win in Portland, so good for them. Jazz in the Nets tonight. We're going to talk some basketball in a few minutes with uh, Ben Anderson, who writes for uh, KSL.com and covers the Jazz. But we're going to start with college football. Britton Covey, the youth slot receiver, meeting with the media. Here is Britton. Good morning, Britton. How are you? Morning. I'm doing good. So you've, you haven't had to go through much, actually, a, a change at all in, in the wide receiver room other than, you know, in your, in your second year. But um, what has that move been like from Guy Holiday to Chad Bumpus? Well, I mean, first thing is, uh, I think all of the guys that were here with Coach Bumpus uh, in 2018 when he was a graduate assistant uh, recommended him. So I'd say there were about five or six guys in the room that were around him when he was there. And when Coach Witt asked us about him, all of us uh, gave the highest recommendations. So it's been nice to have someone that you know while also having a fresh new face that brings fire to the room. Uh, we really respect him, partly because he – you go watch his highlights. I mean, you, he's, he's walked the walk, and he is very practical. Uh, he reminds me a lot of my first receivers coach, 2015, Coach Stubblefield, in terms of his technicality of things. Very good with footwork, very good with hands. Um, very technical, and I think that, that that's kind of what I live for. I love that, that aspect of the, of the game and of receiver play. So, uh, And then he's just hilarious. I mean, he's young enough, too, where he can go out there and show you himself what, <laughs> what he wants you to do. So it's, it's, it's been great. Uh, but at the same time, we really appreciate Coach Holiday. I love Coach Holiday um, and all the receivers we, you know, one great thing that I'll say about Coach Holiday is he cares about us as men, not just as football players, and uh, we'll never forget that. And uh, we just hope that he knows that, and we've, we've talked to him about it. So, But we are grateful to have Coach Bump, too. Next question will come from Josh Furlong, followed by Josh Newman with the Salt Lake Tribune. Britton, welcome to your 10th spring football camp. Ah, thank you. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned uh, that, that uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in, in the wide receiver room that, that recommended him. How, how, much, how much involvement uh, do the, does the coaching staff have when, when trying to hire a new coach? And, then, and where do you feel like you guys can maybe progress under, under Coach Bumpus? Yeah, well, I think that Coach Witt did it well. Uh, I've been here, like you said, about 35 years and I've seen some coaching changes in my time. And every time coach Witt says the same thing that we're not in a rush to fill the position because we'd rather get the right guy than just a guy. And so in that time he does ask, I'm sure the coaches, but he does come and ask my opinion. He does come and ask the other receivers opinions in the room. And so I think that that means a lot and, you know, 
not not worrying about a timetable as much. It's a good thing we got him quick because it's been great to have him for spring ball. But we got the right guy. I know we did. I can't. I really can't tell you how excited we are as a receiving core for this year because Coach Bunt brings that fire into the room. Um, and then the next question was, what was? I'm so sorry. What? Josh. It was just more. What What do you feel like? You know, he can bring to to the table that will help. Oh him yeah. Progress. Well, it's similar to what I said before uh so he was a great slot receiver um he has he's so technical i've always felt that and maybe i'm biased because i'm like four foot tall but uh i've always thought that short guys make great wide receivers coaches because they could never rely on all these crazy gifts or athleticism to be great players you got to rely on a lot of the technical side of things and so when you get someone who has that athleticism or height, you know, someone like Solomon Enos or Devon Bailey, and you can teach them that side of things, the technical side that they're way better than anyone without those could ever be they, they exceed at everyone's expectations including their own. And I think that that's what he brings to the table that I'm really excited for. Next question comes from Josh Newman followed by Alex Markham. Great. Good morning. Morning. Um, I know that we goof around about your age and things like that, but, you know, but given your age and, and given how long you've been in school, was there any consideration this off season to maybe bypassing the rest of, of your eligibility and taking a shot at the NFL? Not really. Uh, mostly because I only got to play in, you know, three games last year. Had I had a whole season, I think that might have been a consideration, but uh, never really crossed my mind with everything that went down last year. I, I've been wanting to have another full season with the guys for two years now, and uh, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, including going to the NFL, and so I'm glad that everybody stayed, and, and uh, I don't want to – live with my mind focused on the NFL because then you miss out on so much of the joy that comes from, you know, college. And I think that that, I actually think that that happens a lot in college football nowadays. Uh, I'll, I'll hear freshmen uh, coming in talking about leaving after three years. And the, always the first thing I say to them is, you know, you don't think about the NFL right now. Don't even worry about that. I mean, I, I could go through countless examples of guys who, you know, didn't do it the typical way. I mean, Terrell Burgess, you know, didn't, he started his fourth year, senior year, and, and now he's doing great. And so I think too many guys worry about the NFL right now during their college career. Um, but no, I didn't really cross my mind last year. Just to follow that up um, with Chad Bumpfus, two things. One, how, how beneficial is it to have a young guy who isn't that far removed from his playing career and two, having a guy who, you know, has some pro experience, someone like that for you to lean on knowing that that is your ultimate goal. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said before, coach Bumpus has, has this fire in him. He's not far removed from the game. He understands a lot of the new things that the game has developed in the past 10 years, you know, just from, you know, how the spread offense has evolved to things like RPOs and, and such. And so, he's got a good understanding of what we're trying to do. Uh, and honestly, he just the most competitive person you'll ever meet. You'll lose a rep and 
in a practice and one-on-ones and he'll go running after you down to the five yard line, throw his hat on the ground and start jumping up and down. So he's really competitive. And, and that is what brings that fire into things. Uh, I think there are times if we're not having a good day that he gets so frustrated that he wants to put the cleats on and go out there and hit someone. So it's, it's pretty fun to have someone who, you know, still fired up and probably thinks he could beat half of the room still. I think that's what it brings to the table. Final three questions for Britain will come from Alex Markham, Cole Bagley, and Bill Riley. Britain, man, first off, you're you're not you're not old, man. Wasn't it just yesterday that I was interviewing you out at uh, out at Tempview, huh? Yeah, no, that was a couple. Feels weeks. like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, hey, man, so you know, you you talk about uh, Bumpfish being new and everything, but a lot of experience, obviously you've got a lot of experience as well. And, and you're really vital to that room. So, um, what is it that you're kind of taking on with more of a leadership role, um, in that room with the guys and, and maybe even especially during that time when there was that little bit of a gap between holiday and, and Bumpus, I'm, I'm sure that you were pretty much taking the lead there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I've grown a lot as a player and as a teammate in my time here. Uh, and I think I've always tried to be the type of leader on the team that, uh, you know, I am vocal in front of the group, but more so I try to be more of a one-on-one type person so that if anyone has any issues one-on-one or if anyone's struggling, they know that they can come to me privately uh, because I'll, I'll, you know, give them that, the benefit of the doubt. I'll, I'll give them that, uh, just, I don't know, ear to listen to. And, uh, I've just always tried to be that type of person. And so in that time, I just tried to make sure that everybody was all right. Uh, as simple as that. I think that leadership can be expressed in many different ways. And, uh, the older I get, the more I realize how personal it needs to be for it to be genuine and authentic and for people to really respect you. And so, yeah, I I don't know if I've been the perfect leader for the group in that transition, but uh, I don't think I needed to be because we've got other guys. We've got Solo, Slavens, um, JD's back, which is great. We've got T-Boney, who actually has been here longer than I have, Tyrone Smith. So we've got a great group of guys, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, But it is it is really cool to be an older guy on the team. It's, it's strange. Every other year in my career, I felt like this was the older guys team. And this is probably the first year where I come in and, and I see, you know, someone doing something that, you know, maybe is not in youth culture. And I'm the one that's like, no, this is, this is my team. Like we, we don't act like that here. You know, this is, this is our team. And uh, it's really cool to feel like that, to feel like an older guy. Excellent. Also, just a, a quick follow-up. How uh, how nice is it having JD back in the room, man? Oh, it's so great having JD back. I love JD. We're, we're the two Smurfs, me and JD. Uh, we used to have a package in 2018 called Smurf Package because we're so short. And we were both on the field at the same time. But JD brings so many things to the room that, including just a, a happiness, a goofiness that I think we missed. Next question will come from Cole Bagley. 
I'll, I'll save you another age joke, uh, but you've dealt with some tough injuries in your time here at the U. What was it like to come back from those injuries and, and perform at such a high level, even though it was such a shortened season? Yeah, yeah, it was it was more of a mental struggle than a physical struggle, honestly, because uh, what ha- what would happen is I'd get back from certain injuries and then in practice, I'd re-injure them and then I'd get back and then I'd re-injure them in practice. And it got to the point where, you know, you know, you never want nothing's worse than when people call you injury prone. It's like a dig in your side and you, and you don't want to be that type of person. But there are some times that some things that you can't control. And so, uh, it was a mental, a mentally exhausting grind the last couple of years. Uh, but then I kind of took matters into my own hands. And for the last, you know, three months, I've been going to a personal trainer every single day on my own, uh, just working on everything that my body has struggled with over the last two years. A lot of these soft tissue things, things that came as the result of my knee, a couple hamstring things. And, and so I am stronger than I've ever been. I'm faster. And I believe that I'm less susceptible to injury because of what I've tried to do on my own. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to keep that going. I think if I have another four or five months of that every single day on my own before the season, I'll be okay. And just a, a quick follow up um, with, with a full season ahead of you now, what are you looking forward to the most this fall? I am looking forward to, gosh, man, I just, I, I have a similar feel this year as to what I did before 2019. Is it 19 or 18? It was Snoop Tyler Huntley's last year with the team, with the group of guys, um, with returning starters, with the opportunity to do something special. Uh, I have a similar feeling and I think we're going to have a great year as a team. That really is my, the thing that excites me most. Final question will come from Bill Riley. Morning, Britt. Morning, Bill. How's it going? It's going well. Um, not an age joke, but having been around a little while, you've also seen a fair share of quarterbacks. And, and I'm curious, you've seen guys that were all pretty experienced. But Charlie Brewer comes in with four years of starting under his belt at a pretty high level. And you've got some young kids in the program this spring as well. I'm just curious, in the limited time you've been able to throw with him and, and, and be around him, uh, what, what stands out about Charlie? And uh, can, can, it, can you tell that he's played a little bit of football? Yeah, you can definitely tell that Charlie's played a lot of football. He's got that confidence. Charlie's great. Uh, I'm excited for fans to get to know him because uh, – I think I'm doing a podcast with him later this week, actually. He's got, I, I'm not, it's not a shy personality, but he's more reserved, but then you get to know him and he's just, he's hilarious. I love Charlie. I'd say the two things that stood out to me most about Charlie since playing with him is one, his, his movement in the pocket. Uh, I haven't seen a quarterback able to move like that in a while. Just his, he steps up in the pocket. He slides left, slides right, keeps his eyes downfield. You could tell he's got a lot of experience. Uh, it's, it's like he's got another set of eyes in the pocket, uh, knowing where to move. And I've, I've thought that's amazing. And the second thing is his release. He's got an extremely fast and quick release, uh, which helps him get it into tight windows. Cause he's not very tall. Um, so, I know as a quarterback, you know, in high school, I had a hard time receiving over my line and they were like 
six foot. Now these guys are six, five on the offensive line. And so having a quick release to see it in these windows, these gaps is really important. And those are the two things that have stood out to me the most. There's youth slot receiver Britton Covey. When we come back, Ben Anderson is talking jazz with PKNI. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5, 1280, The Zone. Time to welcome in Ben Anderson. He writes uh, on the Jazz for uh, KSL.com, and the Jazz are going to be playing the Brooklyn Nets tonight. The Nets winning in Portland last night. James Harden playing 40 minutes as they win 116-112. to 112. Ben was with us late in the show yesterday, so he didn't know about this game, obviously. Uh, but nonetheless, some big-picture stuff with the Jazz with Ben. Ben, good morning. Good morning. So, Ben, our question, having watched the Jazz dismantle the Bulls, win by 25, the kind of stuff they were doing back in January, find a team at or below 500 and crush them, hit the threes, deny all the easy layups, get rid of a bunch of, a slew of just silly, sloppy turnovers that give teams hope, and blow a team out. You see that, do you think the Jazz are back on track, or do you want to see more before you announce something like that? No, I think they're certainly trending back in that right direction. I think they were a little rusty coming back out of the All-Star break. So I think it's trending in that direction. I don't think they're going to get back to playing the way they did in the first half of the season. I think that's just an unusually hot stretch that teams tend to go on, and and, and not often, but the fact that it doesn't happen often is probably more an indicator that we won't see them get back to that point. But I do think they're probably somewhere in the middle and closer to what we saw last night as being their true identity versus what we saw those first four games coming out of the All-Star break. So I want to go back to the Philly loss, and that was frustrating on a number of different levels, obviously. But one of the frustrating parts for me was to see Joe Ingles and, and to an extent, Jordan Clarkson playing very well. But you get down to five minutes to go, and you go back with the starters. And it doesn't necessarily matter how the starters are playing. And I'm looking at Bogdanovich specifically. And then you go into overtime, and so Joe and Clarkson, certainly Joe, uh, they become spectators the last 10 minutes of the game, essentially, because of the fact that they extended five more minutes for the overtime, and that's where I get my other five minutes. My thought is those two in particular have earned themselves the opportunity under the right circumstances that Quint Snyder gets to decide as far as closing games rather than going with a specific formula. How do you view that and what they should do when you get in those situations? Yeah, Quinn's always been pretty rigid in those situations. It certainly changes in the playoffs. He's been willing to, to go out and mix things up depending on certain matchups. And then since that Philly game, we've seen a couple of alterations. There was one where Joe Ingles did stay in. I don't right. remember if it was the Wizards game or, or what it was. And then uh, certainly Rudy Gobert closed the entire fourth quarter and the Jazz win over the Raptors. So I, I do think... Quinn Snyder probably agreed with that at that point, too, that, hey, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich, what he's doing now is, you know, whether it's a funk or whether it's who he is or whether he's coming back from an injury and it's not going to get better until next year, whatever the problem is, you know, I do think you probably need to be willing to work around that, especially if your goal is to, say, 
hey, we're just being we're just going to put ourselves in the best situation to win as many games as possible, so you can get to the playoffs with the with the number one seed. It can't be just about kind of defining that rigid identity that you talked about. So when you get to the playoffs, that's what you're going to rely on. Because I don't think the Jazz are set that that is the identity they're going to rely on when they get to the playoffs. I do still think the best version of the Jazz is probably if Boyan Bogdanovich comes back, plays like he started or like he did most of last season, if he can get back to shooting close to 40% from three, and he already is. Uh, but if he can, he's just clearly not having the same impact he did last season. If that comes back, it's worth continuing to give him opportunities to see if you can find that rhythm. But now that we've got, what, 30 games left in the season, right around there, I won't be surprised if, if you do start to see more lineups or more lineup adjustments, even late in games, even if you continue to start Boyan, just to see if there's a different closing unit you need to go with. So I'm under the assumption that now that we've seen the Ersan Ilyasova debut in, in what was clearly garbage time, that there will be some effort to work him in the rotation somehow. And whether that's working him into the rotation proper or whether that's, hey, they're going to rest guys down the stretch and so guys are going to take on different roles depending on who's sitting every night, that they got him for insurance. They need to have him play a little bit in case there's an injury or a matchup and a need how do you think he's going to be used going forward now that he's, he's finally played? I agree with that. I think the concept of that, that, that it would be nice if it was a guy that could step in and plug and play and, and be ready to go if you need him. I don't know if Quinn Snyder's going to be willing to do that because I think you could have made that same argument for Shaq Harrison. And I don't know if Arsene Ilyasova is you know, better than George Niang at this point in his career, so he's not going to jump anybody in the rotation. But you're right if there's an injury or if Boyan, for some reason, is unplayable come the postseason or you want a little bit better rebounding, which is something Ilyasova does, it's probably ideal to get him out there. The best way to do it, and I think Quinn Snyder would tell you this, is you know win games by 25 like you did last night and let him play for six minutes in the fourth quarter. But I do think you could start to see a couple of plug-and-play minutes where, you know, Mieoni's had a few stints where he'll get three minutes at the end of the first quarter and three minutes at the end of the third quarter just to try and get him used to playing with starters and get him used to playing with the other guys in the rotation. The good news is, honestly, Ilyasova should be more plug-and-play in case there's an emergency than a guy like Oni because he's played whatever it is, 800 games, and he started 400 games, and he's been in the NBA for 13 years. There's just He should have a general sense of what is going to be asked of him, what his best role is going to be, how he can help a team, where you don't necessarily need to carve out minutes from somebody else to get him on the floor. But, but I will be curious if Quinn Snyder starts to find ways to strategically rest some of his players down the stretch so they are a little bit fresher come the, or come the postseason. So one of the things that has plagued the Jazz to an extent has been these slow starts, particularly offensively. And it's hard to put your finger on it, but obviously against the Bulls, that wasn't the case. So I'm wondering if you think it's just about a mindset to make sure that you're ready to go when the game starts. You don't have to necessarily blitz them and be up by 20, but you've got to have some flow early. I, I do think some of it's trying to get Boyan Bogdanovich involved, and I hate to make it sound like he's this punching bag because I, he's certainly not playing well again, like I mentioned, but, but he's not playing, I think, as poorly as, as some people think he is. He's just not playing anywhere near as well as he did last season. But I, I do think there's some you know goal to get him involved early, and he tries to put the ball on the floor, and then he turns it over, and he's not a terrific defender. And when you turn the ball over the way he does, he doesn't throw it out of bounds. He tries to make these weird, long cross-court skip passes, and he dribbles into somebody's leg, and, and you know it ends up as a layup going the other direction. And that not only gives somebody two points, but it takes away your opportunity to get two points. I mean, it really ends up being 
you know, almost a three or four point turnover every single time Boyan touches it, it when he has those turnovers. And if he's doing it two times or in the last couple of weeks, it seems like he's doing it basically three times every quarter, uh, you know, that's six points, eight points potentially that, that he's giving up. But I think that's felt like a huge, huge hole at the end of the first quarter where, you know, you're down 29, 23 or 28 to 20. And he's certainly been a part of that. And then other guys, I think, start pressing around him, try and make up some of that, that deficit. So I think last night when he only had one, you honestly saw kind of the, the advantage of that. And he didn't particularly play well again. Uh, he didn't play well necessarily in the first quarter. But I do think that's the big issue, honestly, is just turning the ball over and not playing so sloppy and coming out a little more focused, like you mentioned, this attitude that, hey, you know, the game has to be a full 48 minutes. You can't play a good 36 minutes and just an OK 12 to start the game, especially now that every team in the NBA is gunning for you. And they're going to be gunning for you because they're going to be so ready to play you in the first quarter because they're excited to play the number one team in the NBA. So how long does that last and how long before we see teams, and and I think the Nets could be an example of it, hey, you've already got two of your three stars out. That's established. Now you got to go back to back. Uh, You're coming in from the West Coast. Sit, guys. I mean, we're getting to the time of season where the, the teams at the bottom tend to tank. Maybe this new playoff changes it, and maybe that doesn't. I don't know how much it excites the Warriors to be in a 7-8-9-10 game. Uh, where do you think this is going? Because I'm, I'm just not convinced everyone's going to be cranked up this time of year. We've seen a lot of teams mail it in down the stretch. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we're going to see anywhere near a full-strength Lakers team when the Jazz play them in back-to-back games. And, and maybe, you know, if LeBron is back... Maybe he plays one of those two games, but doesn't play both. I think you're right. I just, you know, t- teams aren't out there trying to win every game down the stretch. Some teams are. The Suns probably should be. The Jazz probably should be because there's going to be an advantage to them being younger and playing at home when it comes to the playoffs. But the Clippers know they can win anywhere. The Lakers know they can win anywhere. Denver should probably have a little bit of confidence that they can play well, though they've never been super consistent. Even, you know, last season they were as good as they were late, but they weren't that that good early in the season. So, I do think you're going to start to see some of that a little bit more. The teams that are going to be most confident are Brooklyn, who you talked about, uh, and then, of course, both Los Angeles teams. Uh, I'll be curious how the rest of the West handles it because, you know, there's just not a lot of separation now. I mean, Dallas is fighting to prove that, you know, Luka's an MVP candidate and belongs in the playoffs every year, and they probably should be, but haven't played great this year. I think Golden State would like to make it back this year, so they're not going to rest guys down the stretch, I don't think. I think they're going to make a real push to try and get in there. San Antonio would probably like to make it, but let's see what happens in the next 48 hours if they trade DeMar DeRozan or LaMarcus Aldridge and are, are happy to just fall back. So, But I, I'm with you. I don't think the Jazz are going to get good teams trying to bring playoff performances in the second half of the season. You might get some of these younger teams or bad teams trying to prove themselves, but the Jazz have, you know, outside of the Wizards and maybe the Pelicans a couple of weeks ago, they've done a pretty good job proving that they can dismiss those teams and, and handle those teams even when they bring a good effort. So since the Philly game in which the two players got fined, the Jazz have taken 262 free throws versus 99 in the six games for the opposition since Gobert and Mitchell had their outbursts. You think that's more than a coincidence? No, I mean, I think that's why you do it, and I think it it, it works. I think it matters. I think you have to be willing to go out and fight for yourself, and you know, maybe Boyan Bogdanovich needs to do it now because he, he seems to get really frustrated as he tries to get calls at the rim and, and doesn't get them, so maybe he needs to go out there and, and earn a fine or two. But, uh, no, I think it matters. I think it's a good thing to do. I think you're willing to put your money where your mouth is and say that, hey, we're not getting a good whistle. We get contact at the rim, and, and you know, Donovan Mitchell shot 16 free throws the other day. You, you've got to back it up by being willing to continue – 
to attack. You have to put the refs in a situation where they do have to call those fouls. But yeah, those are those are good finds. I think that's that's going to be a, a very good uh, purchase for for both Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell down the stretch of the games uh, to finish the season, where they are getting the free throw line more, and and it makes your life a little bit easier. It gets you to that free throw line, and 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 that's where you need to be to be efficient. And Donovan Mitchell could certainly use and you know a, a boost in his efficiency as, as it's kind of dropped off mid season. So. I think those are valuable. I think that was probably a smart time to do it. You knew people were watching because it was the number one team in the East and the number one team in the West, and you were getting down to the All-Star break. I think, you know, I don't want to say it was planned like that, but I think they certainly understood that, hey, something needs to change, or they want to see something change, and this is a good opportunity to call for that. So I'm interested in your previous answer about the teams that know they can do it and can kind of turn it on and turn it off and the other teams that can't. And I'm with you on the Lakers. I'm not sure I'm with you on the Clippers, though, because you know Kawhi's been impressive, and he's won two titles with two clubs, and I think uh, most of the NBA assumed that he would elevate the Clippers uh, right to the edge of that level if, you know, if the Lakers denied him, so be it. But at least they'd be right there, and something isn't right. They've gone out in the second round of the playoffs. They've pretty much blown the team up around him, fired the coach, uh, changed a lot of players, and now they're fourth, and something's still wrong, and I'm wondering if it isn't the talent thing, because there's too much fantasy basketball. He's talented, but he's clearly one of the quietest. The the When it comes to being a loner in the NBA, he's one of the best examples. Maybe he's the best example. And so there isn't the leadership, there isn't the camaraderie. It seems clear that the Clippers missed that last year and that they're missing it this year. How big an issue is that in your mind? How much was he a product of? He was in really strong or- organizations and cultures in San Antonio and Toronto. And now the Clippers are a little more in flux and they need more leadership out of him. And Serge Ibaka seems to have made this clear. Where are they? Where are they headed? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you look at some of the leaders they've had around them, whether it was Tim Duncan or Tony Parker or Manu Ginobili or Kyle Lowry, who's a very underrated leader and was certainly the kind of the key factor on that team as far as having a voice and being somebody with the Raptors that was going to you know make them believe they could win a championship. Kawhi's good enough to get you there. But, yeah, you probably need somebody to rally around. And Paul George has proven he's not bad. He likes to talk a lot. He has huge performances. He's very good. But he clearly has issues where he disappears for stretches or the game isn't as impactful as it looks like it's going to be. And Kawhi's going to do his thing, and he's going to get, be very solid and get you, you know, 28 points and be one of the best defensive players in the world. But, yeah, for whatever reason, there is some gap there. So I, I think I'm with you. I don't necessarily know if they can flip the switch. They did last night against the Hawks. But – they certainly seem to believe they can flip the switch for whatever reason, even though it's the Clippers and they're the most cursed franchise in the NBA. They seem to have this faith that, that they can just turn it on when they need to. So I think that's why they're trying to be aggressive in the next 48 hours. They've been tied to trying to go out and get a guy like Kyle Lowry. They could certainly use that point guard leader that comes in and is a voice and is a fighter uh, that you know Patrick Beverly, I think, probably wants to think he is or people want to think he is, but he clearly doesn't have that impact on the floor. So. They probably need another piece. We'll see if uh, you know the move they made last night where they traded Cabenjoulet to clear up a couple of million dollars is just to get them under the cap and they're done, or if they're going to try and wheel and deal and make something else done, uh, or make another deal, I should say, to, to bring in a player that can push them over the edge. But I think you're right. I think they lack, as weird as it sounds, championship-level experience, despite the fact that they have a two-time finals MVP on the roster. Ben, as always, we appreciate a little time. Thanks for dropping by and talking uh, talking jazz and talking NBA. 
Thanks, guys. There's Ben Anderson. You read him at uh, KSL.com. When we come back, Jeff Judkins, the women's basketball coach at BYU, joins us next. They play Arizona tonight in the NCAA tournament, 5 o'clock on ESPNU. We'll talk with Juddy next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to welcome in Jeff Judkins, women's basketball coach at BYU. PK and I talked to him in the last hour of the show yesterday. His BYU basketball team getting ready to face the Arizona women 5 o'clock on ESPNU. Here is Juddy with PK and I. Time to welcome back to the show Jeff Judkins. Former youth star, Larry Bird's old teammate, now the women's basketball coach at BYU. And when I say now, I mean for the last 20 years, Juddy. 20 years. What a run. It's a long time, Dave, that's for sure. And never (laughs) thought I'd be here this long, but you know, when things, you enjoy what you're doing, you, you don't change much and just keep going. Yeah, it's the story of our lives, Judd, right here. Three of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was heaven, you know, once I do my own thing, because for 10 years I had to do what somebody else wanted me to do all the time. So it was kind of nice to be able to call my own shots and kind of do the things which I thought was right for the team and so forth. So it was good. So you're down, you're down double digits late in this game. What are you telling your team? Well, you know, I called a timeout. We were down 14, and I called a timeout. They won the run, and I pulled them in, and I said, hey, look, we've got about four minutes. Um, if we can cut this lead from 14 to 7 before the fourth quarter, then we can come in the fourth quarter and hopefully play well and start off good and and uh, you just, just, you know, just cut in the lead. And you've probably seen this in the whole tournament. It's not just one team. It's when the uh, lower seed is pushing the upper seed, at the end of the game, it's more pressure on, on, the, on the higher seed team. They just seem to feel that pressure knowing that they don't supposed to lose. And whatever happens, it, they start, it gets in their head sometimes. And, and then, of course, momentum is a big part. But we just came down, and we did cut it to seven which was big, and then we came out and we just hit some shots and made some plays, and then next thing you know what, you know, we're, we kind of got them on their heels, and that's kind of what happens. So, I mean, I saw it all this weekend with a lot of teams. So, you know, I'm real proud of these guys. We've had a couple games like this during the season, and we've, we've lost some, but we've won some of them too. So it was kind of a good thing for us to be able to, to really do that. Judy, as a kid, I watched the NCAA tournament on TV, and when I got into the media and I got to start covering it, I can remember the rush of excitement. I mean, I was really stealing money. And you hear players talk, and as you get older, you got more perspective. And it's fun to go to an NCAA tournament, but it's not the same as it was when the first couple times I went. And 
the players, you hear them talk about it and you see them play and you think they're going through that same thing, except that rush of adrenaline that everybody else feels really messes up the game for them. And I'm curious how you get your players to settle down because you've been at BYU 20 years. You've been to the NCAA tournament 10 times. Uh, and you've won now. This is the fifth time you've won in advanced, but they're always kind of spread out. There's definitely a cycle to building these teams with you at the Y. So the players don't have a lot of experience. So I'm wondering how you get them to settle down in the minute because I thought when you were hitting threes in that run, the team was really poised, but they don't have a ton of tourney experience. How do you get them to do that? Well, you know, a lot of it is doing things beforehand, you know, uh, during the season. In trying to, you play big games. Um, you try to schedule big games. You're playing against good teams, and but a lot of it's just their character, Dave. It's it's weird, like you know, when when I was at Utah, we had those guys. They just believed in themselves, and they they knew that they could do it. And practice and all the things that we did beforehand just kind of came in there. And you know, I've had, like you said, I've had some teams that that have kind of gone through this same thing and I just think maybe it's just going over explaining it um, making sure they understand what they're supposed to do at those times but just let them play in fact this is what happened I remember it happened sometimes in other teams but I'll, this was more recent is yesterday you know we're coming down and it's a run and we get a steal and the game's I think we're tied or close and I want to run a play and the ball kind of gets tipped out and we're running down the court and uh, one of my players, Tegan, has the ball at the top of the key, and I'm yelling, pull it out, run a play, and she catches it, and nobody's guarding her, and she fires it, fires up a three-pointer and hits net, you know. And uh, I think she just had a good feel. She knew that she could hit that shot when she was open, and she took it. So a lot of it's on the players. These guys do a great job of of really having the feel of the game and making the plays and doing it. And uh you know, maybe it's all those times in practice where you stop and say, hey, you need to do it this way, you need to look this way, you need to do that. Maybe all the film sessions with them, all that just pays off, you know, um, right then. But you have to make plays in this tournament. To win, you have to make plays because all these teams, can pl- they all can play. They, they all have talent. You just have to be able to execute and really play your game. So as an ASU grad, Judd, I absolutely hate all things University of Arizona. <laughs> you beat them, I'll give you five bucks. Yeah, you don't like them too much, do you? No, so you need to win this next game and send those losers home. Well, it'll be nice. I think uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a good chance of beating them. I think we match up pretty well with them. They, they have a really good point guard. They'll probably be in the top eight of the draft, um, just a total jet, um, just really fast. And, and, you know, she gets the basket, creates a lot of problems. Um, we're just going to have to do a good job with that. But uh, we've kind of played a couple of people like that over the years. So hopefully my team can, can adjust to that. So I'm curious, in the men's game, we're seeing in this NCAA tournament, we are clearly seeing a generation of players who've watched Steph Curry and Damian Lillard shoot logo threes, and now they're out there shooting logo threes in multiple games. Is that happening in the women's game, too? Is the shooting getting yeah. – you're the shot doctor. Is the shooting yeah. getting better? Are they imitating yeah. who they see on TV? Yeah, so I think, I think generations see certain people – and I think he, Steph Curry's changed a lot in the last four or five years. A lot of these kids are looking to shoot the ball more outside. 
and they're trying to do the things that the NBA guys do. And that's 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 interesting because you know um, every generation it kind of is kind of different. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. And now it's Steph Curry, and I'm sure it'll be different. It'll even be different after, in a while after that. But um, these girls watch. Let me tell you, these girls watch basketball. You know, a lot of them think, "Oh, they don't watch it." No, they watch it. They're probably more junkies than the guys sometimes. So, but you know, it's it's uh, the game's changed. The game's changed a lot. I still think though, the women's game is a little bit more what it was ten, maybe twelve years ago in college basketball, and that is they're they are. There's some really good teams that got inside presence that are very, very good, and you know most of, most of the good teams have that now. You know it's not just all shooting threes, but um, these kids can fire it. I mean, you got to watch that kid. The kid from Iowa and the kid from from UConn, the freshmen, are unbelievable. And even the kid that I have on my team, Shaley Gonzalez, is just the way that they can play and how they do it is just it's just amazing. Money free throws down the stretch by her. Uh, I wanted to uh, hit you up as far as University of Utah men's team because you're a distinguished alumni of the program. There's no question about that. This position is open right now. Uh, A two-parter, what would you like to see as far as the credentials of a head coach, and what do you think about Alex Jensen? Well, I think Alex would be a great choice. I mean, of course, he played at Utah, was on – Probably some of the best teams Utah's had. Um, he's he's done his he's done his his hard work and he's paid the price. You know he's been around a lot of a lot of good coaches that can help him. I know with me I had a lot of people that helped me through the way, and I know that he he's had the same. And being under Coach Snyder, I think it's helped him see some things. And being his right hand man, I think also he he would recruit well because he loves Utah. He loves the program. He loves Salt Lake City. And so it's really easy to sell something that you really have passion for. And then I think probably the third thing is is that um, you know he has he's he's got a he's got a really good nationality where he can he can he can recruit all over the country. He only played overseas for a while so I'm sure he's got connections there with people. Um if he gets the job, the big thing is what Rick did, and I'm not trying to toot my horn or whatever. But when Rick got the job, he was smart. You know, he hired good assistant coaches that really recruited the players that he needed. You know, you got You got to recruit in state. You got to recruit that kind of player. You got to recruit in California. You got to probably recruit now uh, overseas, and you got to. You probably got to recruit. Um, you know, probably in Texas. Texas, you know, it's a little harder to go back east and get kids to come. But it does happen, but it's a lot harder. And that's what Majerus did. He got coaches that, that were good in those areas. And I think that that's what Alex has got to do if he gets the job. I don't want to go uh, It's a Wonderful Life and all, uh, you know, Alex is Jimmy Stewart, George Bailey. But we've all seen the movie, and this guy's going to leave the small time and go to the big time and, you know, shoot for the stars, and he keeps getting pulled back into the small town to make life better there. Alex has got a dream of being an NBA head coach. I think a lot of people have heard that and believe it. You had a dream for how your career was going, and it went a different way, and you've stayed there 20 years because it's fulfilling. So if Alex has the nightmare scenario, and PK and I both lived it, and it's stressful where two people want you to do something, and you can only do one of them, 
what would you tell him about chasing your dreams, which we're all taught as a good thing and all that, and yet what you got here is special. Don't overlook that just because it doesn't have as much sizzle. You've lived it. What would you tell him? Um, I would tell him that you do a job and you take a job that you're going to enjoy, that every day you get up in the morning and you're you're ready to go to work. And I think Alex has a little different than anybody else. He's got a family and he's got two kids. And, and you know, I think his wife has been very lucky to be in Salt Lake City with him at the Jazz where she'd be, she's got family, her family's from, from uh, Provo. And so I think she's close. And so when he's gone all the time, She's got people she can do things with. Let me tell you, people don't realize this. One year in the NBA is like four or five years in college travel-wise. Yeah, you're still going on charter flights. and You're still doing that. But the bottom line is you're still gone. And um, I think it's hard. It's a hard life. And it's, it's a hard life to have a family. And it's a hard life to really have a good relationship. And I think you have to weigh what's important to you. And I think Utah will pay him good enough money that he feels that, that it's worth it. I know his, his, he, I'm sure he has a dream of coaching the NBA, but it's, you know, one year you're good, one year you're bad, and you're fired. And that's, that's the kind of, kind of uh, situation that is. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that's just kind of, kind of what it has to be. And I guess what I can say, David, it's the same with you. You probably have had many opportunities to go in a bigger market, be able to be a sportscaster in a bigger market, but you probably have made a choice that you like where you are, you enjoy what you're doing, and the same thing happened to me. There's no question, you know, I thought I'd be coaching the men's team and all that, but I've been with I've been with, with BYU for 20 years. It's been great. I've coached some really, really good players, and it's basketball, no matter, no matter if I'm coaching BYU women's basketball team or I'm coaching somewhere else, it, it's basketball, and it's something that I totally love. And um, I'll tell you, my team, they work hard. They work just as hard as I, when I coach the men at Utah. They're just as dedicated as they were in Utah. Um, so, you know, I just think you got to do what you think is best for you and, and your family. It's Sometimes it's easy to make decisions for yourself, but you gotta look. You gotta put your family in this, and I'm sure Alex is that way. Alex is a very, <clears throat> if he decides to take this job, if it's offered to him, I'm sure he's gonna look at it and try to look at the whole picture and and all that, you know, and 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 try to make the best decisions for him and his and his family. What are some of the differences between coaching in college and coaching at the pro level? College, you have more control. The players have to respect you more because you can sit them out. You can do things. It's more practice probably, not as many games. So you're doing more teaching. You know, I remember Coach Ruggiero said this to me, and I always thought he was crazy, but he said practice is, is, is more fun than a game. And as assistant coach, the games were, were the fun, and practices were long and long and dreary especially with Coach Ruggiero's for four hours, five hours. But as I've become a head coach, I do enjoy practice as much or more than I do the games because it's teaching and because it's, it's, it's spending time with your team. And I think that is more rewarding almost than anything. So the pros, you don't get that opportunity. As you probably will notice, the pros, the players control it. They control everything now. Back when I played, it wasn't that way. 
But now it's that way now that players control who's the head coach, who's doing what, who's doing this, who's doing that, and I think that's harder. Um, I'm not saying that a lot of coaches want to be control freaks, but I think they like to be able to know that what they feel and how they do it is what's best for the team. And um, um, the problem is, you know, the Jazz, in my eyes, just watching them and seeing them, they're a very, very close team. And they're they're very respectful. They respect Coach Snyder and his staff, and you can't say that in too many organizations. And I think I think it starts. To tell you the truth, it starts from the ownership first. If you got owners that are that the players respect and know that what they're doing, it kind of it kind of uh, trickles down to the whole to the whole you know program. And I mean, Alex right now is in a really good situation with the Jazz. I mean, it's probably one of the better franchises to really be part of. Judy, we could probably talk to you for another half hour, but I'm told you have other responsibilities and need to be on your way. We could sit here yeah. and grill you and pick your mind just left and right. I know. It's fun. It reminds me of the old days. <laughs> 20 years, Judy. 20 years, 10 NCAA, tri- 10 NCAA trips, and now five times you've won in advance, and we'll all be watching to see uh, what happens. And if you get to another Sweet 16, it'd be your third. Good luck, Judy. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it, and I hope we hope we can continue to keep going. I guess we're the only Utah team left, so hopefully we can do it. Good luck, Jetty. Thank you. Hey, thanks, guys. That's Jeff Judkins, the women's basketball coach at BYU, as he tries to get to the Sweet 16 again with the Cougar women. We're going to take a break. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines next.